Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Making sense out of senseless tragedy or what some people call the problem of evil or in some cases the justification of God or in theological terms, theodicy. All of those are are perennial questions and issues that seem to always float about the church and our study of Matthew today plunges us right into the depths of one of these discussions as we look this morning briefly at the account of Herod's massacre of little babies in Bethlehem. Matthew 2, as you remember, is giving a series of historical accounts that are all related to the birth and childhood of Christ, but there are a series of accounts that Matthew relates specifically to several Old Testament passages, all the way back to chapter 1 in verse 22, when he told us at the very beginning that Jesus' virgin conception and birth were according to the Scripture. And as we go all the way to the end of chapter 2, Matthew cites other passages, even to the very end, citing how the Old Testament talks about Jesus would be called a Nazarene. And throughout this chapter, he's quoting the Old Testament in five different places, really, to demonstrate how God's sovereign plan was at work through the birth of Christ, confirming his legitimate status as the true Messiah of Israel and directing his steps exactly where he wanted him. And in some ways, answering questions that would have been out there about the origins of Jesus and about whether or not he had a legitimate claim as Israel's Messiah. All of this was written, of course, to Jewish people who, whose familiarity with the Old Testament uh, far exceeds ours. They would have been taught the Old Testament from their childhood. In fact, they would have learned grammar and basic Uh, basic education in every way from the Old Testament. That was their reader. That was their uh, grammar textbook, their theology textbook and everything. That lack of Old Testament understanding can at times dampen our own ability to understand what Matthew is trying to make, the point he's trying to make. And so we have to work our way slowly through these through these passages, trying to understand not only the historical events surrounding Jesus' birth, but also the Old Testament context that Matthew is connecting to these events, really ultimately so we can see the full display of God's glory in the passages that he gives to us. Today we come to one that is as challenging as any, but I believe as we put the time into understanding it, it, re- it yields its rich rewards theologically and, uh, and expositionally for us. The passage In Matthew 2, which is known traditionally as Herod's slaughter of the innocents or massacre of the innocents, the the tale of his destruction of all the male children in the region of Bethlehem shortly after the birth of Christ. Let me begin just by reading these few verses for us. In verse 16, Matthew says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, that is the Magi, he became furious. And sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. If you've been with us in these early days of our study of the Gospel of Matthew, you remember the historical context. Jesus, of course, had been born in this town of Bethlehem. According to Scripture, Micah 5.2 said he would be born there. We know from Luke's Gospel that his family, at the time he was conceived, was not living there. They were living in Galilee, and they traveled down to Bethlehem as a part of an of a empire-wide census where everyone was required to go to their hometown and be registered. And Bethlehem, apparently being the hometown of Joseph, they were taken there by this, um, by this political and, and um, economic circumstance, but ultimately by the hand of God so that prophecy can be fulfilled. And while they were there, some magi, as we saw in recent weeks, they came to Jerusalem from Persia, 
seeking information about the birth of Israel's Messiah. These were, these were the, the, the ones who were, if you will, the legacy of Daniel the prophet and his, his shadow, which was uh, casting a, a very long, uh, long shadow in, in Persia, no doubt, had left its stamp on their own studies. And so, no doubt, they had looked now for centuries to the fulfillment of prophecies Daniel had made so long ago. And when the star appeared, they were connecting all of those data points, if you will, and realizing that Israel's Messiah had had arrived. And so, in Matthew 2, 2, they were coming to Jerusalem and asking, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Now, clearly, as they asked that question, people knew exactly what they were seeking. Everyone in the passage knew that they were talking about the Messiah. In fact, Herod was so clear on the issue that he consulted the chief priest and the scribes with the explicit question, where is the Messiah to be born? Herod learned from his inquiry that the birthplace was just six miles down the road in Bethlehem, and having obtained the information, he secretly summoned the Magi back to his palace. He shared with them what he had learned, and then he made an arrangement with them. They were supposed to go to Bethlehem, identify the explicit location of the child, and then they were to come back and report to him so, he says, he could go and worship the child as well. Now, throughout all that background and all that sort of historical framework that Matthew gives to us, there's really never any dispute from anyone about what this is about, who they're talking about. Joseph, Mary, the Magi, Herod, even the chief priests and the scribes, all of them clearly understand the claim, at least, that this is the Messiah. This is the one who is the long-promised star of David who was to rise and bring about salvation for Israel. All of them understood that very clearly, which makes their reaction to this news very disturbing. Because rather than showing excitement or or even just sort of, uh, even out of skepticism, even wanting to investigate it further to find out if it even could be true, rather than any of that, their immediate response was an attempt to destroy the baby. We're not exactly sure how the chief priests and scribes reacted upon hearing the news. We know from verse 3 that they understood the nature of the report. They understood that this was a question of the Messiah and were told that they, along with all of the ruling power and elite within Israel, were very troubled. They were disturbed. They were upset. And as we saw a few weeks ago, they were upset because they were all illegitimate priests and scribes. Their ancestors had seized control of the office of the priesthood by power 150 years earlier during the Maccabean revolt. And there were many Jews who had rebelled against them. There was, if you, if you would say it this way, there was cultural and political instability throughout Israel because of this. Uh, they had fractured society in their opinions about the priesthood, about the scribes, about the king, King Herod. And so the arrival of someone born in the line of David and claiming to be the Messiah might have prompted some joy on the parts of some people, but for those who were illegitimate in their claim to the priesthood and illegitimate in their claim to the kingship, this prospect of someone who was truly of the line of David could stir more unrest. In fact, it might also lead the people to demand the true restoration, not just of the Davidic king, but of the priesthood, of the scribes, of the whole temple system. And so all these people, all these guys would be thrown out of their positions. And it wasn't thrilling news to them. And so over and over and over again throughout the first century, not just with Jesus, but with any, any claim to the Messiahship. 
There was this constant effort to suppress the news, which is exactly what Herod does. They understood the claim that this baby was the Messiah, and the last thing they wanted was a Messiah who came from anywhere other than their camp, their group, their circle. Because for them, Messiah wasn't someone who was established by God, but someone established by them. The work of the Messiah wasn't brought about by the power of God. It was brought about by the wisdom of men. So what we have here really is a clash between jealous men to a potential rival to their throne. But more than that, what you have are angry reactions and rebellion against the plan and providence of God. I mean, you have to, you have to take off the mask and see this for what it is. This is rebellion against God at the highest level. This is insurrection. This is revolt against God. And you ultimately have hatred for God and hatred of His plans, which is motivating all of this. The very people who were established as spiritual leaders, the very people who were established as the spiritual teachers, the the spiritual shepherds within Israel are the very ones who are attacking His plan and His Messiah. In some ways, it's a reflection of the state, the spiritual state of Israel at this time as Jesus is born. They were a very religious nation, but a very unbelieving nation. They were like, as Jesus says later, they were like whitewashed graves, which were on the outside maybe gleaming and decorated with ornaments and flowers and all of that stuff. But inside, he says, they were full of dead, decaying, rotting bones. They were spiritually dead on the inside. That's the state of Israel. They're like the shepherds and leaders that you find in ancient Israel in the Old Testament, particularly those that Jeremiah himself denounced in chapter 23 of Jeremiah. He says in verse 1, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you've scattered my flock, you've driven them away, you've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I'll bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply, and I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. In Jeremiah 25, verse 34, Wail, you shepherds, cry out, roll in ashes, you lords of the flock, for the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come. You shall fall like a choice vessel. No refuge will remain for the shepherds, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of shepherds, the wail of the lords of the flock, for the Lord is laying waste to your pasture. And the peaceful folds are devastated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. So the Lord had pronounced judgment already against Israel and against their leaders, or we might say it this way, the Lord had pronounced judgment against Israel because of their leaders, and the whole nation was going to suffer. The whole people were going to be carried away in an Assyrian captivity, a Babylonian captivity, an exile that would last for generations. 600 years had passed since the time of Jeremiah. And as Jesus will go on to teach over and over again throughout the book of Matthew, things had not improved at all. The state of Israel, the state of her leaders was just the same. And it's evidenced by their attempt to destroy God's very Messiah. Now, all that is very important for you to understand if you're going to understand what's going on in Matthew as he connects all of this to the Old Testament. If you don't see the continuity between 
Israel in Jeremiah's day and Israel in Jesus' day, if you don't see the continuity between God's judgment in Jeremiah's day, you won't see the continuity with God's judgment during Matthew's day. With all that background, you can take a closer look then at the key elements that Matthew records for us here and how they highlight the role that Jesus was sent to fulfill as Israel's Messiah. First, he tells us, really, um, by implication, verse 16, uh, Jesus was rescued from Herod's atrocity. Jesus was rescued from Herod's atrocity by a messenger, if you remember. In Matthew 2.16, Matthew tells us simply, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the magi, by the wise men, he became furious. The Magi, remember, back in verse 12, had been warned not to return to Herod because he'd planned to destroy the child. They had made an agreement with Herod, but Herod made the agreement under false pretenses. And so they were under no obligation to go back and report anything to him. In fact, they had been warned directly by God not to do that because he was the one trying to trick them. But in Herod's mind, he had been tricked. He had been made a fool of or made to look like a fool. And so he becomes furious. The Greek actually intensifies this with an adverb suggesting that his rage exceeded all reasonable bounds, which would be a tough thing to say about Herod because he had no reasonable bounds. This was not abnormal for Herod. He was a violent and brutal man. Everything we know about him seems to confirm this in his character and his behavior. Josephus tells us time and time again about his brutality. At one point when his brother-in-law had been appointed by Herod as high priest in his opening ceremony, the people applauded and cheered him. And immediately, Herod regretted his choice. He became jealous of his brother-in-law. He sent him down to Jericho to where he had a sort of drowning accident in a two-foot pool. And then he had his wife put to death because he had simply heard a rumor which turned out to be false that she had been unfaithful to him, his first wife. At another time... Some of his own officials came forward trying to inform him of plots against his life and in a fit of rage, he had them arrested, tortured, gathered a crowd, supplied them with clubs and had them bludgeon his own officials to death who were trying to help him. At other times, he burned his enemies alive. He executed others with the sword. He sent his own two sons down to the coast and had them secretly strangled before he exported their bodies back to the family tomb and had them ceremonially buried next to their grandfather. His own son, Antipater, hated him and plotted against him his whole life. But Herod had Antipater put into chains, and five days before Herod himself was to die, he had his own son put to death. Fearing people would not be sad when he himself died, he ordered that a representative from every clan in the nation of Israel be captured and brought to Jerusalem so that they would be killed on the same day Herod died, just to ensure that people would be sad. On the day that he died. Thankfully, it wasn't an order his soldiers carried out. But this was Herod. He was a brutal, maniacal, maniacal, sorry. You would think a guy who finished a PhD could pronounce basic words. <laughs> he was a brutal, maniacal leader. So it's not surprising what we read about here in Matthew, how he reacts when he perceives that there's a potential rival to his throne. As I said, Bethlehem was just six miles down the road. He would have expected when he sent the Magi away that he'd hear back from them within just a couple of days, maybe a week at the most. And when he doesn't, he flies into a fit of rage, immediately sends a military unit with orders to kill all the children in Bethlehem and all the surrounding hills. And and while Christian tradition has built this up as something, you know, sort of... uh, major hundreds, maybe thousands of kids being slaughtered. Historians have estimated there would have been at the most a a thousand residents within the entire area of Bethlehem. It was a relatively small and unknown village. 
And at a birth rate of about 30 per, uh, per thousand, there would have been 60 kids born in two years, but with a mortality rate of 50%, half of them would have already died. And so there would have been no more than 30 kids born. How many of them were males, we don't even know. 15 to 30 kids at the most who would have been victims of Herod's brutality. Based on the report he got from the Magi, he gave the command to slaughter all the babies under the age of two, probably as a precaution just to make sure that his soldiers wouldn't somehow overlook uh, this baby Jesus, who at this point was probably just a few months old. But as we saw last week, the Lord had already sent an angel before the soldiers ever got there. And he warned Joseph in a dream to flee in the middle of the night to Egypt. And so by the time the soldiers get there, Jesus had already fled to safety. He wasn't a victim that night because God had rescued him. Because God had shown him favor. Because he was rescued by the kindness and providence of God. Which only serves to highlight the point that dozens of other babies weren't. I mean, you can't escape the question when you read about this. You can't escape the question about God's goodness. You can't ignore or, or turn away from the question of why God seemingly abandoned the other families who were in Bethlehem, the surrounding hills, and their little babies. I mean, it raises the question, is God's kindness only for some and not for others? Does God love the baby Jesus more than the other babies in Bethlehem? Or maybe more biting than that, did God orchestrate all of this so that there could be a divine messianic rescue of his beloved son and leaving all the others to slaughter? Does God value the baby Jesus and the necessity to work out his own plan at the expense of all these other children? That contrast between the deliverance of Jesus and the seeming neglect of the rest of the children is one of the key points behind this whole tragedy. The contrast between the mercy and favor of God and the deliverance of His beloved Messiah and the willingness of God to allow the babies to suffer their fate at this brutal, the hands of this brutal leader. And it sets the stage for Matthew's quote from the prophet Jeremiah and the tragedy in Bethlehem has to be understood in light of the tragedy from Jeremiah's own day. The passage he quotes in verse 17 takes us really to the second point, which is the fact that Israel was reminded of her affliction by this massacre. Israel was reminded by, uh, of her affliction by this massacre. Matthew simply says that when these babies were killed, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. He uses the word then, unlike the other quotations here, it was the actions of Herod that fulfilled the word of God here, not the direct agency of God. God didn't himself strike down these kids he makes it clear that Herod is the one who is directly the agent of their destruction and the one who directly was the agent of fulfilling this scripture. But you can't, again, escape the fact that it is God's sovereign hand which was allowing it. It was God's sovereignty that foresaw it. And Matthew makes that point by quoting from Jeremiah. Now, if you were here last week, you remember we did a detailed look at this word fulfilled and we noted that it doesn't always refer to uh, some prediction of details in the future that are fulfilled through some activity. It, it isn't always prediction fulfillment like Galatians 5.14, which says the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you will love your neighbor as yourself. 
We understand that to be the Old Testament law, and we understand that the Old Testament law wasn't necessarily predicting anything. It was establishing a truth, which then could be summarized, or you might even say demonstrated, in acts of love, loving your neighbor as yourself. And so Paul uses the word fulfilled in that way. And we saw even how Matthew in his own gospel uses the word fulfilled in a similar fashion. It isn't always some Old Testament passage that's predicting something in the future, but just simply establishing a truth, which then can be, you might say it this way, fulfilled over and over and over again. Well, Matthew uses the word fulfilled in this kind of a way. This was fulfilling what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. We read that. We, we have to kind of keep ourselves from thinking about predictions and future details. That's not what Matthew's doing. He's using this in the sense of demonstration. This is pointing to something. And the verse he quotes out of Jeremiah 31 is this, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now someone has said, Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen stands out as perhaps one of the few notes of gloom in a chapter full of joyful hope. In fact, the entire book of Uh, of Jeremiah, or I should say the entire section of Jeremiah 30 through 33 is called the book of consolation, the book of comfort. And particularly in Jeremiah 30 and 31, Jeremiah alternates back and forth between warnings of God's judgment and promises of God's restoration and healing. And as you move throughout those two chapters, the promises of restoration become more and more pronounced the further you go into the chapter. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me back over to Jeremiah 30, and we can take a look at this section and see all of this at work. Jeremiah 30, beginning in verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers and they shall take possession of it. So these are the words he's writing to Israel and Judah, to the northern and the southern kingdoms as they find themselves in captivity to Assyria and to Babylon respectively. Just a few verses down in verse 7 of Jeremiah 30, alas, That day is so great, there's none like it. It's a time of distress for Jacob, and yet he'll be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off his neck. I will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no longer make a servant of you, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So immediately you're introduced to something here, that God is bringing them into judgment in Jeremiah's day, but he's promising a restoration, but it's a restoration that's going to come at the time of the Messiah. It's going to come at a time when they will serve David, their king. For those in Babylon, this provided some sort of hope. They had experienced a time of distress that Jeremiah had detailed, but now he gives them this promise that there was coming a day of restoration, but it wasn't a promise they would see fulfilled in their own lifetime. In fact, it wasn't even a promise they would see fulfilled in the lifetime of their children or their grandchildren or their great-grandchildren or any of that. This was looking far far in the future, at a time when God would send the Messiah and a time when Israel would be spiritually transformed. He says not only will they serve 
David their king, but they're going to serve the Lord their God. This was the whole reason they were sent into Babylonian captivity or Assyrian captivity, because they weren't serving God. But he says finally they would with sincerity. Then verse 12, For thus says the Lord, Your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There's none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. That is your idols, the gods that they were worshiping. He says, all your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy. God is saying, I'm acting like your enemy now. The punishment of a merciless foe. Because your guilt is great. Because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great. Because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. So this is the explanation of why they were experiencing what they were experiencing. This is the explanation of why they were going into Assyrian captivity and Babylonian captivity. That was the condition that Israel found themselves in. And it was the condition from which the Lord was promising to one day heal them, to one day restore them. The time when the Messiah would come. The time when God would spiritually transform them. Until then, their wound was incurable. Their pain would continue. Now, as you move throughout the book of Jeremiah into chapter 31, this future, a promise of future restoration becomes even more pronounced. In chapter 31, verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Down in verse 8, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor. Together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping, they shall come. With pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, declared in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. So God had scattered them in his judgment and in his anger. But he says one day he'll gather them again. And again, you hear the promise not only of restoration to the land, but a promise of spiritual transformation. God says they're going to come back with cries and pleas for mercy. There are some who suggest that all these promises pointed to a return from Babylonian captivity. But there are elements throughout this section, in Jeremiah 31 particularly, that make that impossible. He speaks about their return, not just from Babylon, but from all kinds of countries where he scattered them. He speaks about a return with the presence of the Messiah. He talks about a restoration, not just externally, but internally, a spiritual transformation. And none of that was the case when they returned from Babylon 70 years later. So the context of Jeremiah 31 is clear. It's looking beyond Jeremiah's day to a day of restoration, to a day of transformation. And until that time, Israel would remain scattered. Israel would remain spiritually sick. Israel would remain incurable. They would remain spiritually dead. They would remain under God's judgment. Now, all that's critical as you come to Jeremiah 31, verse 15, because as we said, it's one of those rare notes of grief in the midst of all this resounding hope throughout the chapter. But God responds to the grief the same way he responds throughout all the rest of the chapter with promises of restoration and, and prophecies of spiritual renewal. 
Jeremiah 31, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Now, Ramah, just so you know, was a border town. It stood between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and it was elevated on a hill. And it was one of those towns where people would send signals because it could be seen from miles away. And they would even blow trumpets because you could hear from miles away in both kingdoms whatever sounded out from Ramah. And so Rachel is pictured at the top of this hill with a message for all of Israel, for the northern kingdom, for the southern kingdom, and her voice is lamenting, lamentation and bitter weeping, weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Many of them have been slaughtered by the Assyrian invasion. Many of them have been slaughtered by the Babylonian invasion. Many of them were shackled and carried off into slavery and captivity. They had been brutalized. They had been raped. They had been pillaged. Their cities had been burned. Their loved ones slaughtered in front of their eyes. And now, almost in total, they were being removed from their own land, walking away, reckoned, if you will, by by. by by Rachel, reckoned to be as good as dead. Jeremiah, by the way, picks up Rachel here because she was kind of the ideal mother within Israel. She was a woman for whom motherhood meant everything. And so the loss of her children was all the more devastating. She, by the way, was one of the three prominent barren women in in the book of Genesis. But she was the one for whom we're given the greatest profile of how she reacted to her barrenness. Unlike Sarah, unlike Rebecca, who in some ways are merely mentioned as barren women, but not really, not really allowed to voice how they feel, it is Rachel who over and over and over again was crying out to the Lord, was scheming for ways to find children. At one point, she cries out to her husband, Jacob, give me children or I die. So for her, existence without children was pointless. She might as well die, which makes her such a powerful image for the loss of children. It's as if the blessing of fertility which had been given to her, was now being snatched away and reversed, and she was returning to that state of barrenness. It, it would have been all the more acute, her sense of pain. And here Jeremiah pictures Rachel, the one for whom motherhood meant the most, having her children violently ripped away from her. And in the midst of her grief and loud lamentation, the Lord speaks, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there's a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There's hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. It's the same thing you read throughout Jeremiah 30 and 31 elsewhere. This is a promise of restoration a promise of return. But it's important to note, it's not simply a reference to Babylonian captivity and their return from that. It's much greater. And you hear it in the next verse as immediately God begins to speak once again about spiritual transformation. Verse 18, I've heard Ephraim grieving. You've disciplined me and I was disciplined. Like an untrained calf, bring me back that I might be restored for you are the Lord my God. For I have turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. So here you have restoration physically, but more important, you have restoration spiritually, renewal, transformation. And of course, as you read on through the Chapter, you come to Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And so as you read all this, you have to ask yourself the question, when? When is all this going to be true? When is God going to do all this? Unfortunately, many, many people answer the question by saying, well, it happened whenever Israel came back from Babylon. It happened 70 years later when God providentially let them go through Cyrus and a group of them returned and reconstructed the temple, restarted the temple worship, eventually rebuilt the city. But let me tell you, that is a woeful understanding of these promises that shows really a blindness to Israel's spiritual condition they were disciplined by the Lord and a portion of them did return 70 years later but there was no spiritual transformation there was no Messiah that ever appeared that return was if you will Maybe a prelude in a small way to something coming, but it was by no means a fulfillment of all these prophecies. Well, Matthew now, back over in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew taps into all of that when he says that this verse in Jeremiah was fulfilled in Jesus' day. When he talks about the pain of these women, their loud cries of lamentation and and weeping, the shrieks of pain, the shock of death like Rachel so long ago having her children ripped from her arms and carried off into captivity, he here pictures Israel once again as a nation having children ripped from her arms to be slaughtered by Herod. And she becomes representative now of the Bethlehem mothers who find no comfort in the midst of the lifeless bodies of their little kids lying in front of them, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. But Matthew quotes all of this as a reminder of what happened so long ago and what's happening then because Israel is still under judgment. They're still in need of deliverance. They're still in need of a Savior and a Messiah. They're still in need of spiritual renewal. You know, as you read a lot of people who look at this in Matthew, they struggle because they claim that Matthew is somehow distorting the Old Testament. They claim that he has ripped this verse out of its original context and applied it without any sensitivity to its original meaning. But you, when you understand Jeremiah 30 and 31, you understand exactly what Jeremiah is saying. He's talking about an incurable wound. He's talking about an affliction of Israel that will only be undone by the arrival of Messiah and the renewal of Israel. People struggle with this because they, they superficially assume that the entire thing in Jeremiah 31.15 was limited merely to the Babylonian exile and they fail to understand the spiritual dynamics that, Matthew's, excuse me, that Jeremiah is pointing to, particularly the new covenant. Israel had returned, but they hadn't been cured. They hadn't yet approached God with pleas for mercy. They weren't like the picture of Ephraim slapping his thigh out of grief and shame over his behavior and disgrace over his sinfulness. They were still under God's judgment, still scattered throughout all the nations, still estranged from God, still religiously superficial, hypocritical, and lost. 
and they were still losing children. And Rachel was still weeping. And she continues to weep until the restoration takes place. It was fulfilled when God's judgment was poured out on Israel in the Assyrian captivity. It was fulfilled later on when Israel was sent into Babylonian captivity. It's fulfilled further whenever Jews are scattered throughout all the nations of the world. It's further fulfilled when Israel is under Roman oppression and the leadership of false shepherds who turn their venom and hatred against God's Messiah and on the dawn of His birth try to slaughter Him. The slaughter of these babies is tragic and heartbreaking. It's as tragic and heartbreaking as tens of thousands of people who were slaughtered by Assyrians and tens of thousands of people who were slaughtered by Babylonians. It was tragic and awful as people being brutal, brutally tortured and women being raped and, and homes being burned, people being enslaved. But it's all understandable within the picture of God's righteous demands and His holy judgment and Israel's sinful rebellion. It's tragic It's tragic, but no more tragic than all of Israel's rebellion. But even in spite of that, God holds out a promise of restoration. He'll bring His chosen people back. Romans eleven twenty-five. so all Israel will be saved. Or eleven twenty-six. in this way, He says, all Israel will be saved. As it's written... Deliverance will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's still holding out hope. It hadn't been fulfilled in Matthew's day. It wasn't even fulfilled in Romans, uh, in Paul's day when he wrote the book of Romans. He's still using future tense verbs. This is still something that still awaits the future. All Israel will be saved one day. It hasn't happened yet, but the Scripture promises that it will. It will happen. So what do you have here in Matthew 2? You have God still estranged from His people. You have them still in need of a deliverer and a savior. You have them still unwilling to look to God, to cry out to Him in humility and repentance so that He can be their Savior. He always held out hope, a promise of healing if they would just leave behind their shallow repentance, their superficial religion, if they would just respond to the Lord with recognition of their need for mercy He was as eager and ready as ever to be their Savior as much as He was for anyone. He would have gladly delivered them just like He delivered His own Son, Jesus Christ, if they would have just turned to Him. But they didn't. At least not yet. And so it was fulfilled exactly what Jeremiah was saying. By the way, the same is true for you. Your anguish, your tragedies may not be as bad as the mothers of Bethlehem, but you may still find yourself estranged from God and under His judgment, under His wrath. You might still find yourself wailing and lamenting whatever it might be. His call to you is as simple as it was for Israel. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent and believe. Turn to the Lord and be healed. He will forgive all your sin. He will be your God. And you can be His son or daughter. Thankfully, that was made possible because of the Messiah. Because of Jesus Christ. 
He came into this world to be the promised deliverer. If you're here today and you need the Lord, if you need to be reconciled to God, if you have been cut off from Him, it's because of your own sin and your own hardness of heart toward Him. But if you will turn to Him, He's provided a way of forgiveness. Jesus Christ took your place on the cross. He took all the wrath of God so that you could be at peace with your God. That's our call to you this morning. That's the way for you to understand this passage. That's the way for you to respond. That you would be not one of those who continue on in superficial religion, but you would be one of those who respond to the Lord's promise of salvation. If you need to do that this morning, we would love the opportunity to be able to talk with you more about it. We have a visitor reception after our service is done. It's down the hallway to the right. I'll be there. Others will be there. As I said, we'd love to have a few moments to show you from Scripture exactly how God can forgive your sins, how He can reconcile you to Himself, how He can be your Savior, and you can be at peace with God. Father, we're grateful for your mercies in our life. We're so grateful that you have given us a Savior, that even when Israel was so hardened against you, you opened the door of salvation to all men and you welcomed us who were once far off to be brought near. Lord, we're grateful that you give us a part in this new covenant, that you make us new creatures in Christ. We're grateful that you take away our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. You write your law in our hearts. You forgive our sin and place your spirit within us. Lord, for all those things, we, we give you praise. And Lord, we pray this morning for any who haven't yet known that salvation, that you would move in their hearts by your tender kindness and mercy. Draw them to yourself and make them your own. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.